Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast, where we explore the intersections of horror film and feminism. In this first series, we're bringing special guests to dive deep into film and TV shows with witchcraft at the heart of them. I'm Anna, co-founder of the Final Girls and your podcast host. In this episode, we'll be discussing an underseen hammer horror film from 1966, The Witches, also known as The Devil's Own. Based on the novel by Nora Lofts, the film follows English teacher Gwen Mayfield, played by Hollywood legend Joan Fontaine, who gets a job at this small, terrifyingly cutesy English town by the name of Hedeby as the head teacher in the private school that siblings Stephanie and Alan run. Things start getting weird pretty soon, with unexplained absences, children getting hurt, a random cat appearing to follow Gwen everywhere. In short, Hedeby has some seriously bad juju, and the film takes its sweet time to unfold its mysteries. The Witches works as a sister film to the much better known The Wicker Man, although Colin Hardy's folk horror came out years later. But this one has a female protagonist, and gains even more layers if you pair it with a viewing of Luca Guadagnino's recent Suspiria. It's got everything you might want in a witch horror film. A quaint little English town with a lot of dark secrets, voodoo dolls, creepy kids, cats, and dance horror. I'm joined in this episode by Marion Gibson, professor of Renaissance and magical literatures at the University of Exeter and author of a number of fascinating books about witchcraft and literature and visual media. Note that mid-episode we go into spoilers, and for this one in particular, I'd encourage at least one viewing. So if you haven't seen it yet, you might want to go back and give it a watch before listening to this episode. Who are the witches? I saw it. You saw what? She stuck Linda's hand in the rollers and turned the handle. What? She put Linda's hand in the mangle. Starring Joan Fontaine as the head teacher, target of the witch's cunning in two continents. Stephanie, where are you? Marion, thank you so much for uh, coming on board and talking about the witches, aka the devil's own with me for a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a pleasure, Anna. Oh, thank you. Just to kick it off, can I, can I ask you, when did you first encounter the film? When did you first watch it? It's probably about 15 years ago, something like that now. So it isn't something I've known all the time that I've been interested in, which is it was something I came to quite late, actually, realising there was this Hammer film and I really ought to look at it. What was your first impression of it when you watched it way back then? And how has that changed when you rewatched it for the purposes of this? Mm. I liked it a lot. Um, but I also thought, because I'd already seen The Wicker Man, I thought, ah, this is just like The Wicker Man, actually, but a different setting, different protagonist. But of course, The Witches comes first. The Witches is from 1966, and The Wicker Man is from 1973. So we're looking at, kind of looking at the wrong way around, if you like. So I thought that I liked I liked its its lovely sixties technicolor. I thought it looked lush, um, and I really liked its focus on the central character. I thought she was really interesting. So this is Gwen Mayfield, the, the teacher who's at the the centre of the the film. I really liked all of those things. And then coming back to it this time, I think some of the things that I noticed more 
were things like the level of detail of the sets, the way I think they probably spent quite a bit of money on this one. I mean, a lot of Hammer films are actually very cheap and they look a bit cardboardy. This one's actually really quite a high quality one. And I also thought more because I'd... Um, because I'd recently watched the new Suspiria film, I thought more about the dance sequence at the end of The Witches, which I think is clearly an influence on Suspiria. So I, I kind of noticed some of the the more kind of artistic high-end things about it, if you like. Mm. I, I love that you compare it to both The Wicker Man and Suspiria, because that mm. are exactly the two notes that I have about the, the film when oh, I was right. watching it. Yeah, yeah. Because the, the comparison to The Wicker Man is really fascinating because it is literally almost exactly the same narrative structure of a kind of erudite but prim and uptight professional, in this case a teacher, in The Wicker Man it's a policeman, kind of coming into this very small, close-knit town. And it seems so yes. idyllic at first, doesn't it? And then it it's does. those small things that just seem just slightly out of place, but you can you know ostensibly just say oh well you know this is the the small town quirks of any little village or any little town and then they start kind of getting a more nefarious or darker undertones as it as everything develops um but kind of even to compare it a little bit more with the wickerman how do you think because that has such a a long-standing kind of cult appeal and is so well known whether i don't feel like this film the witches is as um not relevant but as well known mm-hmm. as the wicker man yeah i think you're right i suppose it might partly be to do with its title as you say it's got different titles hasn't it um and i suppose perhaps it's less distinctive in some way certainly the witches could be the the you know the roald dahl book or it could be nicholas Rogue's film of that it's got the same title as that so i suppose it might be to do with that but i also think it's i think it's different from the wicker man because it's not a musical in the same way i mean one of the brilliant things about the wicker man is it's a horror musical which in the early 70s is like what what is this thing um so it's not got that it's not got that kind of extreme quirkiness I guess it's a much more straightforward narrative it's a little bit like a a mystery um novel and it was based on a novel it was based on a novel by Nora Lofts who was primarily known for historical fiction and was he quite a straightforward realist novelist so it's a bit more, it's a bit straighter in a variety of ways than, than The Wicker Man is, I think. I wish it was as well known, because I think it is as good in a number of ways. It, it isn't perhaps as distinctive, but I do think it's got real merits. And as I say, some of the things I noticed this time were things like the attention to detail. So when she first goes to the village, and yeah, like you say, you get this sense that it's this idyllic place. I was thinking about just how flowery it was. You know, they'd filled her house with flowers. It was very detailed in every possible way and I was even looking at like the china in the cupboards and it's kind of you know early 20th century maybe Edwardian kind of china it's got some little floral sprigs on it it's all very chintzy and it's all very kind of old-fashioned and you get the sense this is a world where there could never possibly have been a world war or anything vaguely disturbing at all you know this is a little rural corner of England that's that's so beautiful and tucked away that nothing bad could happen in it and I, I thought all that was fascinating when you compare it with the Scottish location of the Wicker Man. That 
you know, it's a long way away from anywhere. It does look a bit more threatening right from the start. So I was quite interested, by, by the way, the, the witches sucks you in, that you really do start thinking, oh, you know, this is a this is a jolly nice little village and it's all very romantic and, and nothing bad would ever happen here. But like you say, there are undertones, aren't there? You know, there's Michelle Dautrice as her, her housekeeper. Um, and you think, oh, well, she's been in some other things that, that we need to pay attention to as well. And obviously she was Edward Woodward's wife as well. So there's a lovely little connection with the Wicker Man there. So I suppose those are kind of indicators that something's going to go wrong. And the other thing that it reminds me of are things like the Miss Marple stories. So it's a little bit like St Mary Mead. So you do start thinking, oh, hang on, something might be afoot here. It's like the Wicker Man and it's not like the Wicker Man, I guess. Yeah. And um, how would you describe um, Gwen Mayfield, who's played here by Joan Fontaine, kind of as she mm. arrives into the little village of Hannaby? Mm, she is a little bit like Sergeant Howie, isn't she? she? She's clearly a religious woman. She's had this horrible um, experience in Africa where she's been working in a mission school and puts it there's been some kind of revolt and you know she's had a kind of nervous breakdown so she's she's quite uptight was I think the word you used earlier wasn't it yeah yeah she's quite damaged and she's quite tense and I love her hairstyle I think that kind of it's it's sort of near beehive it it looks like Margaret Thatcher actually You remember what Thatcher looked like in the mid-80s? It's that. (laughs) Everything about her is so, um, her demeanour, the way she carries herself, her hairstyle, her costumes, her clothes are so straight and kind of clinched together. I don't think she's got a single hair out of place. I think, in fact, the only time that her hair goes a little bit wild is when she's having, (laughs) when she's shown... Uh, to be having her nervous breakdown. So she has two in the films. In the mm. prologue, when she's um, teaching at the mission school in, in Africa, and then when she suffers one in the middle of the film and gets sent to um, some sort of hospital slash sanatorium, and that's when her her perfectly poised hair sort of falls apart a little bit. Yes. Yeah, you're right about her clothes as well. She wears these, these neat little suits, doesn't she? And... and... You know, when she goes out, she's always perfectly dressed, perfectly coordinated, wearing a pair of high heels. She's a perfect lady, isn't she? She she looks like a kind of perfect, conservative, Christian lady of the mid-60s in a world that is obviously increasingly changing around her. And you get this sense that she's kind of frozen in that image. And she's by herself, so we we infer from that that she's single and she's coming to this small town to be the head teacher. And she's very warm with the kids from the very mm-hmm. from the very start. But she's also a little bit of um I'm not sure if whether this is her caring a lot about her students or whether she's just a bit of a busybody, because every time there's a student in her class who um, is absent and that happens a few times in the film or there's something maybe it's like tension or something going on she goes directly to their house which might be mm, might, <laughs> might be an okay thing to do in a small village <laughs> it does seem a bit intrusive doesn't it there are lots of moments where she's opening gates knocking on doors peering in windows you do get the sense that this is a kind of 
Yes, she's caring, but she's also a bit of a fosspot and maybe she's a little bit dictatorial. And I think the colonial setting is really interesting because the way she comes across is somebody who's been put in charge of this mission station school. And, you know, she's used to telling people what to do. She's used to ordering people around in a fairly unpleasant colonial way. And then she comes and does this with these villagers somewhere in the east of England. Um, and it does look a little bit like Sergeant Howie again, doesn't it? It looks like somebody who goes into a small community thinking, oh, well, I'm going to be in charge here and I'm going to make everything better and tell these people how to live. And of course, it doesn't work out like that. Yeah. And there's kind of, I, I noticed slight notions or kind of depictions of a certain version of elitism because both her and Stephanie who she knows of who's a kind of well-respected well-known journalist who lives here as well kind of bandy together fairly quickly but then everyone else in the film is sort of presented as being more simple-minded or kind of more rural and I'm using air quotes here kind of as a way to separate the the kind of the intellectual elite so to speak which are the teacher and the journalist and kind of the rest of the the village yes i think that's right isn't it yeah there's the people up at the big house isn't there and then the school teacher who is you know graciously permitted to be part of their social world and then there's everybody else and yeah they are they seem like typical villagers, don't they? And again, yeah, in quotation marks, that you know, there, there is the butcher, there is is the local layabout, there is is the, the the older lady who is a little bit suspicious in a variety of ways. They are a, a series of character stereotypes, aren't they? And it does seem that they defer to her. They they kind of tug their forelock to her especially because they see that she's associated with with, with, uh, Stephanie Bax and her family. It all feels very feudal, doesn't it? Very traditional. And um, what would you say are the first moments in the film? Because it is quite a slow burn. What are the first moments when things start to seem a little bit darker? Like there's something underneath the, the very prim and beautiful surface going on that might have, you know, occult undertones yeah it's it is slow isn't it and they are small indications to start with so there's the the other peculiar character is stephanie's brother who appears to be a vicar when we first meet him we think oh yeah he's the vicar character you know he's another stereotype because he's wearing a clerical dog collar and yeah we think we know who he is and then when she gets to the village, it turns out the church was was destroyed or burnt out or something a number of centuries ago. And he's kind of pretending to be the vicar. And there's this very peculiar scene where they, they she starts to uncover this and he becomes very upset and, and she, you know, withdraws from him because they're both quite emotionally buttoned up and they can't really discuss this anymore. But of course, that builds up suspense at that point. So you, you're really starting to think, hang on, there's something quite odd going on here. Um, and then there are other indications, aren't there? Are those, there are those kind of typical glances that you see in the beginning of a lot of horror films between different characters. You know, we know something she doesn't know, something is going on here. And the other thing, I suppose, is the catch. You get a really good indication that something actually magical is going on when the old lady who is, is a little bit witch-like is, is, you know, the sort of classic yeah, exactly. Kind of granny, you know, healer kind of figure, the cunning woman of the village, if you like. She's whispering to her cat. So we see the cat following the school teacher around. 
Um, and this all seems, yeah, a lovely cat, but it all seems a little strange when the, um, the, the witch woman is whispering in the cat's ear, go on, follow her. So we start to think, actually, what are we seeing here? Is this a world where magic works? And it turns out, yes, it does appear to be so. At least at some level, this does appear to be a film where magic works. It's not wholly realist. It's not wholly rational. And you get these little indications early on. And there's also, we're introduced really fairly quickly to the student characters of Linda and Ronnie, who mm. were very quickly kind of told that they're obviously starting to develop some sort of burgeoning, burgeoning romance, but that's not you know supported by particular people by their families or by other people in the village and then most notably Linda and Ronnie get dolls that look almost exactly like themselves mm. yes which is a bit spooky isn't it there's a little bit of kind of doppelganger stuff going on there yeah I really like Linda I think she's an amazing character so this is Linda Riggs the, the granddaughter of Granny Riggs and She's amazing. She's very beautiful and, and she has a very distinctive face, so a kind of rounded moon face with these lovely regular features. But she also looks a little bit strange and a little bit dreamy. And she's dressed differently from the other girls as well. She's wearing rather more modern clothes. And then later on, we realise that she's actually she, she's a dancer. You know, her background was as a ballerina, the actress who plays her. And... She's just such an interesting character. The way that she moves physically is different from other people. And she seems to be exercising this kind of pull on Ronnie, who's the good student. And we kind of get this sense there's a Romeo and Juliet thing going on. Maybe the families are keeping them apart. We don't exactly know why. And it gradually becomes clearer and clearer that Linda is being pushed into this role in the village. And um, you know, she must be kept pure. She must be kept away from Ronnie. And I suppose that's another indication that we get that something is amiss here. It doesn't seem to be for Christian religious reasons. Nobody seems particularly fussed about uh, her behaviour in other ways. And we see her as quite talented as well, I think. You know, she gets a part in the, the village pageant and she does it quite well. She performs as, I think it's Galileo, isn't it? She, she has to stand up on this tower and, and do a speech about kind of early science. And there's this sense of all this potential sort of locked up in her that, that's, that, that's being wasted in some way, but also is going to be exploited in sinister ways. I think they're fascinating characters. It seems to me it's a really good ensemble cast and all the characters bring something, actually. They're all quite well defined, partly because they come out of this novel, I think. And I, yeah, I really like Linda. I think she's really interesting. And do you think the film intentionally creates this sense of misdirection? Because a lot of our attention and a lot of the kind of the, the dark undertones, so the witchy signifiers, are placed with Linda and with her grandmother, as opposed to who we then find out are the actual leaders of the coven. Witchcraft? Mm. Somebody having a little dabble? Yes, I would think so. It's a sex thing deep down, of course. Mostly women go in for it. Yes, I think you're right. Yeah, you think it's going to be Granny Riggs, don't you? Oh, she, you know, she's the creepy, slightly odd-looking old lady. And, you know, she lives in a cottage all by herself and she's got a cat and she's got this granddaughter who seems to have something going on. And You think it's going to be them, but then it increasingly turns out that even Granny Riggs isn't really in control of, of what's happening. And it is a surprise when you find out who are the characters that, 
that are deepest involved in this because they have seemed really quite sympathetic and indeed quite characters to whom you, you can relate in a variety of ways, I think. I, I think particularly, you know, as, as as women and as as writers, perhaps giving a little bit too much away, but there we go. I think you kind of find those characters quite sympathetic. They, they seem like they're part of modernity in a way that other bits of the village maybe are not. Um, and they're quite individual, you know, they're, they're quite forceful characters, quite articulate characters. And yeah, and it moves towards this conclusion where you realise that they are the threat. It's not the, the, you know, the ancient feudal conservatism of the village. It's not any of that, actually. It's something else, something that's been revived, something that's been dreamed up, some, some new craziness that's got into these kind of old ways and made them far more threatening than they'd seem to be. What did you make of the dynamic between Gwen and the rest of the locals at first and after the revelation? Yeah, I think it's interesting the way she goes. It's about outsiders and insiders, this film in part, isn't it? Again, very much like The Wicker Man. So she starts off being... It's it's interesting because in some films you see, so instance, for instance, like Straw Dogs, which is another comparator that I often use in these kind of settings. Um, you know, you walk into the pub and everybody falls silent. It's it's that kind of that kind of setup. But it's not really like that in, in her village in Hedderby. She she's welcome. People seem to think she's going to fit in. Like you say, she's very warm with the children. She seems to get on very well with them. Um, and I really like that kind of idea. That, that she's, you know, she's welcome there, she's going to fit in with the people, that, that she's going to have a role in the village, that she's found her place. That seems to be setting things up quite nicely, doesn't it? And then, of course, as she gets drawn into things later on, it becomes increasingly obvious that she's kind of their victim. She's kind of in their snare in a way. They know some of the things that she doesn't know. And later on, she she gets into a position of real power, doesn't she? Once she's removed some of the other agents that are are in her way if you like and, and are threatening her then she becomes a lot more powerful it does seem like she kind of takes over the village really she does become the person of power that I thought she might become to start with but she has to do it her own way and she has to vanquish these forces of evil first of all well let's talk about kind of the first moment where witchcraft is directly mentioned and which is when Gwen finds the missing male doll. So essentially Ronnie's, let's call it kind of voodoo doll. Mm. Although that's not the appropriate term, I realise that. And he's just been injured and fallen into a coma. And Gwen finds this mm. doll hidden in the tree, be completely with its head off and stuck with different pins in it. Mm. When she has a conversation with Stephanie, she directly suspects that there perhaps are witches in the village. And the conversation between them is really interesting. So kind of what did you make about that exchange and how they talked about witchcraft, about belief, about what to do with this artifact that they found? Mm. It's an interesting moment, isn't it? Because the viewer's looking at that artifact and thinking, okay, what's this about? And so are the two characters, at least apparently. And this is one of the bits of dialogue that most often gets quoted from the film, actually. I was really interested to discover it was in the trailer. That was one of the things that people who, who put together the marketing for the film thought would really intrigue viewers by the look of it. And it does. It is a pivotal scene. And they, 
they talk about what to do. So, so Miss Mayfield says, well, should we take the pins out? That would be the first thing she would think of. And Stephanie responds, oh, yes, I think that would be a good idea, seeming to agree with her and then retracts from that and, and says, no, I, I don't think we should actually. No, that would be to admit we believed in witchcraft. So it seems like they're having a debate about the rationality of this. There are a number of layers of this conversation that, that come out later. But it looks like they're debating whether to believe in witchcraft or not. And then well, Gwen's feeling, Gwen Mayfield's feeling, seems to be that, in fact, if you do believe in it, it will destroy you. The scene has, has undertones of real threat there. And it's never quite resolved how it is that the magic works. Is it all psychological? Is it just because people believe that things will happen to them that they do? Or is it that magic really does work so that, as you say, Ronnie's doll has been incapacitated and Ronnie has been incapacitated as well? And that scene really has that discussion out in front of the viewer and makes us think about it without ever really offering a resolution to it. At least it seems to me, I don't know, maybe you feel differently, but... I think this is a film that leaves open the possibility that magic does work and that witchcraft work. Absolutely, especially because there's, you know, we see several characters being victimized and being hurt by, by magic and by, by kind of the, the witch that is revealed afterwards, kind of setting that on them for a much bigger purpose than it's just to to hurt them which is makes it quite a fascinating film to rewatch. I think because what you see mm. in first instance completely changes when you know the twist ending of the film and you rewatch it and you can see how everything fits into a much kind of larger narrative and larger plan for the titular witches Yes, it's highly strategic, isn't it? And again, this is very much like the Wicker Man, isn't it? Somebody's being suckered into this community and given a role which is actually rather different to the role that they thought they had. Not the same in, in its outcome, but, but different. Um, yeah, and I wonder how far we're supposed to think this is to do with things like class structures uh, and the kind of obedience that the people in the village seem to owe to the people at the big house. And how much as it may be, in other witchcraft texts, you often find it, you know, oh, this is all mesmerism, this is all hypnosis, you know, that's what it is. Maybe there's an element of that going on there, or maybe there is a a real conjuration, maybe there is maybe there is a real spirit involved here, maybe they have discovered something, or there's always been something supernatural in that village and they're all able to tap into this in some way. You do wonder what the village is going to be like afterwards. That would tell you what the previous force was. But, of course, you don't really get to see. Um, it's all implied it's all going to be jolly fine, all the rest of it. But actually, well, is there still anything there? Will they carry on practising their, their strange religion? Have they awakened some force that, that we should be worried about? And we don't really know. And um, it's interesting when kind of the next narrative beat that happens there's a few kind of moments of escalation of of paranoia and of worry that there might be a coven of witches in the village um, cursing different people and then Gwen has her second nervous breakdown when she's staying over at Stephanie's house and wakes up in the night to be surrounded by the same type of African masks that we saw her 
um, be surrounded by in the prologue as well. Mm-hmm. And she has a breakdown, kind of wakes up in a in a hospital sanatorium of some kind, kind of without her memory, which she quickly recovers. But what is interesting is kind of the reveal that comes after this beat in the story, which is that Stephanie is actually the 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 key witch or the queen witch. She's essentially the leader mm-hmm. of this coven, which is sort of presented as a as a twist ending but also there's a really interesting moment of exposition that Stephanie does where she really explains her motivations and how she got into that and I wonder if you could if you could comment on that on that particular scene all my life I have tried to push my brain to the limit to get all the ideas and the reach out of it and put them at the service of mankind. Do you believe that? Yes. Oh, you must. Because only now that the end of my life is in sight do I feel that I am really learning. If only I could live a second lifetime, or just another 50 years, or the things I could do for the world. A second lifetime, that isn't possible. But it is. Mm. It's all a little bit like Lord Summer Isle as well, isn't it? We we do get that moment of exposition where she says, um, you know, this is this is something that I've become more interested in, but I've discovered something else. It is kind of disappointing that at the centre of this is a woman who has read a book. <laughs> it's all her fault. <laughs> you just think, oh God, really? <laughs> but yes, it is indeed. She's the queen of the witches, isn't she? She's she's the coven leader. She's the the kind of matriarch, the chief witch. There, there are lots of terms for this figure down the whole history of, of representing um, witches in, in drama and then in film. So she's that figure, yes, absolutely. And she's discovered this text whereby she's found this this right. You know, she's presumably, she's probably a, in her late 40s, maybe 50. She seems to think of herself as having lived about half a century. And she's concerned that she's getting old, that she's, she will die, and she wants to renew herself, um, which again is something that happens in quite a few of these films. And of course, the way that she's chosen to do it um, is finding somebody to take her place or to 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 take on aspects of her personality and, and the force that she thinks that she has conjured up. And she's found this book with an ancient spell in it, and the spell is a poetic one. And it's all about this right that she will have to carry out in order to prolong her life, in order to to live forever, possibly. It's one of those films that's about immortality and the desire for immortality, which is this kind of ancient, ancient magical desire. You know, if you find the Philosopher's Stone, if you find the magic elixir of life, you will live forever. And she thinks she's found this. And of course, it's, you know, this kind of gruesome, nasty right that she has in mind. Um but yeah, she's a female scholar. She's got a room full of books. She writes. She's great. Why does she have to be the villainess? <laughs> but of course she does because, well, it's a film of its time, isn't it? It's a novel of its time. And as we've started to say already, it's quite conservative. It's quite feudal. It's quite colonialist. It has certain expectations of its world. So, of course, the, the uppity woman is the one who's behind it all. And it's it's interesting to compare her with the figure of Gwen because they're both um, older women who are in professions of knowledge. So 
Gwen is a teacher, Stephanie is mm-hmm. a, a writer and journalist. But it's interesting that Gwen has, despite being single and childless, is warm and motherly to the children. She's an educator. Whether Stephanie is presented as, you know, we never see her actually say anything overtly anti-children at all, but by just the, her characterization and by the definition of her by her profession, she has no room for kids or no predisposition or no kind of overt motherly instincts in many mm-hmm. ways. So again, it's kind of this separation of the the witch woman as the woman who is not a motherly and kind of is yes. more preoccupied with chasing power and knowledge than with doing, you know, I'm using very big air quotes here of kind of being, <laughs> being a proper woman and having kids. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think you're right, aren't you? Yeah, this is why Gwen triumphs, isn't it? She's 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 kind of new woman to some extent, but not as new as Stephanie is. So she's more feminine, more traditionally feminine. Um, you know, her clothing is is beautiful pastel shade. She's always very neat. Her hair, as you say, is never out of place. Um, and she has this kind of conservative, shiny buttoned up look about her she's the kind of woman that the film approves of and she's only taken her knowledge so far hasn't she she's using it very much to serve others um as you say it's it's set very much in a kind of a warm motherly sort of setting and we see at the end of the film that there's a prospect of her moving on from her single life and, and possibly going on to take that role herself not entirely clear but it looks like that might be where it's going Whereas Stephanie's quite different, isn't she? You know, her hair is shorter, it's often messy. She's terrible, isn't it? Um, and she has, she has quite kind of mannish poses, something slightly queered about her, which again, I really like. I think she's a fascinating figure. I kind of want to, I want to read her articles that she's written in the press, you know? Oh, absolutely. Also... <laughs> you do too. Yeah. <laughs> And she offers Gwen at one point. Gwen looks up to her. I think that's the other thing about the two women. They are alike in some ways. And the film does certainly grant power to older women in some ways, which is good. But Gwen looks up to Stephanie. She she wants to collaborate with her on an article. She wants to be a bit more like her. And there's this kind of sense that, oh, this is this is a more powerful woman. But she's dangerous, but she's she's frightening. Ultimately, we'll have to reject her kind of femininity in favour of Gwen's femininity, which is much more controlled, much more, much more domesticated, if you like. Yeah, I want to read her articles. I want to know what she wrote about. <laughs> I found it quite interesting that Stephanie wanted immortality in order to have more time to gain more knowledge as opposed to becoming younger or regaining her looks. So how do you think she as the witch in this film fits into prior incarnations of the witch on screen? Mm, Oh, that's a lovely question. Yeah, she's not the, the, you know, the wicked queen from Snow White, is she? It's not all about physical appearance. Um, And things have moved on in that sense. She's a lot more like Dr. Faustus. She's a lot more like a male magician, um, you kind of Renaissance man figure. And and it's all about knowledge for her. Again, I really sympathise with that. You know, you you get partway through your life and you think, I've read all this stuff and I still don't know anything. There's so much more I need to know. You know, could I clone myself? Could there be 20 of me? And then by the end of that, maybe I'd know as much as I wanted to know. This this insatiable desire for knowledge, yes. Um, 
yeah, that's what she wants, isn't it? It is at least an intellectual quest. Yes, you know, you feel you could give her that, and and she's a writer. She's a a fully rounded character in her own right to that extent. And I think we have a sense that the way that she sees witchcraft is really quite interesting. She's clearly gone back to the very earliest of texts. The one that she's got in front of her is supposedly a very old book. You know, you think, oh, this is somebody who's been to the British Library. This is this is somebody who's done her homework properly. <laughs> she thinks that she should do. Yeah, I want all that really attractive as well. It's terribly irritating that she ends up dancing in a cellar waving a knife. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask, kind of, I'd, I'd love to discuss kind of this ancient invocation ritual slash human sacrifice of mm. Linda that, that they perform because it's got several layers to it. So she, the, she Stephanie, comes out very, very Tilda Swinton in Suspiria with a yes. grand red long dress slash cloak. She's wearing a big dramatic headdress and everyone in the village that we've met before is there and they're sort of seemed possessed. So kind of how, how does this dance macabre kind of fit into other portrayals of, of rituals and witchy rites that we've seen on screen? It does have quite a few roots. So in, in things like Hexen, um, the very early Nordic film about witches, it's got some roots in there. It's very kind of camp. It's very stagey. It's very artificial, actually. So the way in which it's a deliberate performance, and it's clearly a choreographed dance that they're doing, does have some roots. But at the same time, it also does feel quite new and distinctive. Um and I think the way that it goes back to, to having um, to having some connections with the Suspiria films is important as well, because it not only has roots, it also has this legacy as well. But it feels quite unusual. It feels like what I expect them to be doing is something a good deal more basic, actually. Whereas what they're doing is a highly evolved art form. And it feels like the way they've developed their religion is a very choreographed way. Not unlike Christianity, but also, as we're supposed to think watching the film, not unlike the African rituals that we've seen going on around Miss Mayfield in the past. You know, they clearly practice this together. They have, they have certain movements that you make. They have certain things that you say. There are certain orders that things come in. It appears to be conducted in Latin. So at least the, the key figure is, is speaking Latin. So it feels a little bit like Catholicism. It feels like it's also related to certain kinds of other religious practice. And I think that's fascinating. It feels like the film has made up its mind that witchcraft is an organised cult. You know, it's drawing on ideas of people like Margaret Murray in the early 20th century who said that that was what witches were doing. You know, that when they were accused of witchcraft, actually they were just heretics and they had a pagan religion um, and they had particular rites that they did together communally for that. And it was all highly organised. And they've clearly been reading those kind of books, haven't they? That that's what it's all about. So it always surprises me and it always interests me. And I always think about how carefully it's been put together, that, you know, the, the music in the film is really interesting. The dance movements in the film and the fact that they've employed a ballerina to be our, our you know, leading sacrificial character, Linda. It really mattered to them. I think they've put quite a lot of effort into trying to realise this and making it feel like it was something quite solemn. It wasn't at all funny. There are moments when it appears... 
you know, there's a kind of slight snigger about what they think they're doing, but it is compelling. And I think they probably also thought quite a bit about the balance between comedy and, and seriousness in the film as well. And I wanted to pick up, actually, it's quite interesting that you use the words choreographed and the fact that Linda is actually played by a ballerina turned actress because I'm, mm. I'm quite interested in the intersection of, of dance and horror and I think it's actually a subgenre in its own right which I'm, which I'm really curious in exploring and it's yeah. really interesting because this does feel like a big choreographed dance macabre of a ritual so I wonder what do you think is the connection between our expectations of what witchcraft rituals look like and this element of choreography and dance mm. oh that's a good question I think it's a surprising moment so I tend to expect them to be doing something which is <sighs> Well, Margaret Murray described dancers, which was something more like the conga, actually. So, you know, people dancing in ways that were more spontaneous, um, kind of waving their arms and jigging about. Um, and there's clearly a sexual element going on both in this dance and in what Murray is talking about. So the thing kind of degenerating into a sort of orgy. Um, I guess that's what I expect to happen. And what I get is, is it always reminds me. Maybe this is because I'm the age I am. I don't know. Tell me if this resonates with you or not. But it reminds me of that thing called music and movement, which we did at school in the 1970s. So you would all get together and, um, you know, there would be a score which we played on the piano or record player. And the teacher would say things like, no, you must pretend to be a tree. Pretend you're growing in beside a nice river and waving your branches in the air. And we would all kind of, you know, move together in that sort of way. It has this very sort of communal kind of hippie feel but it's also moving towards something like classical ballet as well so it always surprises me I don't think I'm really answering the question very well but it always seems more formal to me than I expect and it's interesting that even you know the incantation that Stephanie reads in Latin which it translates into English it ends with give me a skin for dancing in grow me a gown with golden down cut me a robe from toe to lobe Give me a skin for dancing in. Which it kind does, of again yes. brings back the movement so, and dancing and the freeing element of being able to dance and cavort around with with this coven and with groups of people. And you're, I think you're absolutely right. It does have a, a sexual connotation to it, essentially, because that's, you know, the youthful passion, essentially, that Stephanie wants to also recover Granted, she does mm, want yes. to just be young to be able to read more and gain more knowledge, but... <laughs> yeah, you feel there might be other benefits, don't you? <laughs> yeah. That's very true. Yes, and the Linda seems to be picked because she is quite a sexualised character. You know, she, she's an ideal vehicle for that side of Stephanie's desire, if that's what it is. So, yeah, I think you're right. It is distinctive for those reasons, isn't it? It does more than your average horror film does in the direction of kind of art film, if you like. And dance is the medium through which it does that. And then what's interesting is is the ending, actually, which I found to be a bit abrupt, um, considering mm. how slow the building up and the reveal of the film comes. The the ritual itself is also quite an extended sequence, but then the actual ending where Gwen 
essentially interrupts Stephanie's ritual and mm. ruins it by cutting herself and, and wiping blood on Stephanie's robe, which in a previous sequence, Stephanie had mentioned that at the moment of sacrifice, there should be no blood spilled. What did you, how did you think that kind of fit into other representations or other witch films? Because what I found quite interesting is that actually very often in films about witches, the witches win. Mm, yes. Yeah, and it could go that way, couldn't it? Yeah, you, there, there could be a completely different and much more Wicker Man moment when they draw Gwen into their coffin and she goes along with this and the sacrifice happens or she is, you know, she is a selfless sacrifice or something of that nature. Yeah, you feel it could end there and then that abrupt cutting off would be a bit more appropriate. But as it is, it feels like this is all very quickly resolved, doesn't it? So what all you have to do is cut your arm. Um and it's all sorted, is it? That does leave me with all those questions about what the villagers, you know, were going to get up to in the future. And were they possessed? You said earlier they were possessed and they do look possessed, don't they? It looks like a kind of sort of trance dance, if you like, where they become possessed by a spirit. Um, you know, again, look the African religions that they're thinking back to it looks like maybe this is some sort of ancestor dance or something like that doesn't it maybe rather poorly understood and, and can see through a problematic anthropological lens but you get the sense that that's what the filmmakers are trying to conjure up if you like but yeah that energy goes away doesn't it it just fritters away the moment that Stephanie is killed uh, they seem to recover from that trance, which I found quite interesting yes. because throughout the entire film, they are positioned as, some of them, especially Grandma Riggs, is, are positioned as also practicing witches themselves in their own right and very mm. much in on this on this coven. But then once Stephanie, as the ringleader, is defeated, they all seem to come out of it and not seem to be in control of their own actions which raises a whole lot of questions and I'm not quite sure if it's a a plot hole or mm. whether there's something a little bit darker that just leads us to believe that this is not over it's just changed hands what do, do you think yeah I wonder about that I mean I do think it probably is ultimately just a failure to connect different bits of the plot because you hear in that expository sequence how Stephanie says she came across this witch cult and she improved upon it. You know, she brought new knowledges to it. She, she invented or discovered this new um, ritual that she's going to do. But you think, well, so they were already practicing something. This is very much like the narrative of modern paganism. You know, people who are the, the kind of fathers of modern paganism, people like Gerald Gardner, talk about encountering old witch covens practicing in the forests and then building their new religion on the back of those. I think they've been reading Gerald Gardner, actually. So they're thinking back to, yeah, <laughs> they're thinking back to something much older, as they conceive of it to be. But, yeah, at the end of the film, it seems that we're supposed to think, well, that actually isn't going to continue. You know, it was all Stephanie. And there's a peculiar line, which I've never really understood, that, that Gwen Mayfield speaks, which is something like, oh, it was in her all the time. Yeah, she says, she says what? that. <laughs> yeah. What? The actual ending of the film, because there's a lovely final scene when we see that, you know, it's a new school term and everyone seems really happy again. And when the other teacher arrives, 
Um, mm. There's the implication that there's some sort of romance brewing between Alan, who is Stephanie's brother, and Gwen. Yes. And she's very surprised. It's like, oh, has everyone been moving out? And Alan has yes. this, the final line of the film is when he says, the one who matters didn't, and looks at Gwen. Yes. And there's this, yes, this slight implication that perhaps she's taking up Stephanie's place or that all the, the piousness and the, you know, quote unquote, correct religion and not witchcraft is restored as the order in the village. I'm not quite sure. What did you think? Mm, I, I thought the second, but to be honest, I somewhat prefer the first. It is a little bit. A little bit cringy, isn't it? You know, there's this kind of moment. They're both rather old, aren't they? Bless them. <laughs> they're, they, they're both rather kind of conservative and buttoned up, and they wear a lot of cardigans. Sweet. And, and yeah, they're kind of going to get together, maybe, and it's all a little bit awkward. And I, I, th I assume it's a sort of conservative shutting down of possibilities, really. I suppose I assume that that's what it is. But it would perhaps be a little bit more interesting if it was the opposite, wouldn't it? And it does all hinge on what that line, what they, both of those lines mean. They're quite cryptic, aren't they? One is about maybe there was some spirit and it was in Stephanie and now it's gone. But on the other hand, has it? where's it gone? Is it still here? And the other is, oh, you know, she's the one that matters. Well, yeah, but how? How does she matter? This presumably is a romantic interest, I guess. She, you know, she looks a little bit fluttering and she blushes a little, doesn't she? I don't know. I get the sense that if this was a later Hammer film, you probably get a lot more of a steer. And it might well be one of those films where, you know, the camera moves around at the back of the class. There's a kid playing with a doll and some pins or something. Mm -hmm. It'd be a better end, wouldn't it? I mean, so much a better end. Why didn't they put that scene in? <laughs> it does feel very cut off, doesn't it? It feels like very shut down, very abrupt. Okay, you know, you've seen the dinner mall now, everybody's done the big ritual, ding dong, the witch is dead, everybody go home. <laughs> um, you know, back to your lives, people. Do you think that in that sense the film perhaps is not as well known because it's not as sexy in a way yeah because we do so. because it's it's quite conservative even in the way that it presents witches and yes. in its ending as well so do you think that may be the reason why especially because it was made at a time where there was a huge interest in the occult and you know hammer horror was producing a ton of films as well so it was very much responding to a demand in the culture and the audience but it it's not one of the better-known Hammer films. No, it isn't. And it isn't one no. of the better-known witch films. So I also wonder kind of what about it has led it to be a bit forgotten and underseen yeah. and not that written about? Because there isn't even that yeah. much criticism out there of it. No, there isn't. No, there isn't. It does feel like it's a bit of a Cinderella film, doesn't it? And I think you're absolutely right. It's not. It doesn't feel Hammerish, actually, does it? It's not as shocking as you expect it to be. It does pull its punches. It does flinch away from the potential endings that it could have had. It's not as interested in horror and in scares and thrills as it is in, in a closure of those kind of possibilities. And it's quite timid in the way that it presents things like sexuality. Certainly, you know, um, 10 years later, you feel this would have been a completely different film. Um, as it is, everybody is fully clothed all the time. And when there does seem to be some kind of sexual element in the rituals, it's very quickly pulled away from. There's a fascinating moment when two men are seen kind of 
putting some sort of holy oil or sacred oil or something on each other. And, and they're very ecstatic. You just feel 10 years later, that's going to look different. But in 1966, it doesn't. And in this, this film, the choices that have been made are a lot more conservative and the camera is quickly taken away and focused on some other things. You feel it's got a lot of potential and there were other routes it could have gone down that would probably have made it far more interesting and far better known. But as it is, it flinches away from some of those things that in later times will will define the, the Hammer film and define the film about witches in a very different way, a far bolder way. Thank you so much for so much, so much time and for all of your insight. It's been such a pleasure to talk about this film. Marion, are, are you working on something right now that you'd like to plug or where can people find more of your work? Oh, always. <laughs> <laughs> it's not specifically relevant to film. Uh, I, I kind of wear two hats. One is, is as a, you know, somebody who works on literature and film. And the other one is somebody who works on history. And I'm, I'm at the moment, I'm doing the history thing bit, a bit more. And I'm working on a book about some Essex witches um, from the Elizabethan period who were um, accused and some of them were executed in the 1580s in a little Essex village that I found some new evidence about so I'm working on that at the moment but the book that I've written most recently that you know people might want to follow up on if they're interested in this sort of thing to do with literature and film I wrote a book in 2017 called Reinventing Renaissance Witchcraft and it's about the ways that old stories of witches like Macbeth and Dr Faustus and so on get retold in, in modern times and I do talk a little bit about Nora Loft's um, novel on which this was based The Devil's Own in there so I've spent quite a bit of time thinking about this recently and I know I'm going to come back to it and I think this is one of the films that I haven't written enough about and other people haven't written enough about so listeners go out and write more about it it's a good <laughs> film <laughs> who are the witches they hypnotize the innocent bedevil the unsuspecting that's it for another episode of the Final Ghost Podcast. Please do rate, subscribe, and share your favorite dance horror moments with us on social media. I'll accept GIFs, images, and audio recordings. You can find out more about what we do on thefinalghost.co.uk and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at thefinalghostuk. You can also find out more about Marion's work. You can follow her on Twitter at witchesetc. And I am on Anime Demented. Get down on your knees. Omnis testentur, ilum in hanc socciet atum aceptum, et in arcana ritusqui uratum esse. Bow down, bow down. O magistri terribilis, anchilum. O magistri terribilis, o magistri terribilis, Oh, Majesty, Terribilis! No, you're one of us.